At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Well, again, good morning, church. I am so thrilled to be with you guys here this morning. If you, uh, if you don't know me, you don't recognize my face, um, I can understand I've, this is my first time up here on the stage, uh, on this specific stage on a Sunday morning. Uh, but my name's Ben Orr. Uh, I hold the title of Student Ministries Director here at the Woodside Romeo campus. So basically my job is to just have a ton of fun with teenagers. That's, that's my job. No, no, of course that's, a, that's an element of it, but it's also to uh, point and direct them to uh, the love and truth of Christ at the same time. So I am more than grateful that God has placed me in this role. I, I, I pray that I... Don't lose it because I love it. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's truly a blessing in my life to, to be in this position and, and hold this position here at the church. Um, so with that being, being said, again, um, if I haven't had the opportunity to get to know you yet, I'll just give you a, a little bit about me so that you, you know me a little better. So uh, I've been married to my wife, Hannah, for coming up on seven years next month. She's right back there, and there's a picture of her over there. Um, but uh, she has been an absolute uh, rock in my life. She's one of the biggest reasons um, that has led me to this point today. She is uh, uh, probably the main component as to me being able to see past the tip of my own nose. Um, but uh, she's, she's allowed me to uh, grow and uh, just be uh, more present with God throughout my entire life ever since I've known her. And I, I love her more and more every day um, and, and thank God for her every day. Um, up next are, are the children. You see there's, there's three little ones running around in that picture there. That was taken back on this past Easter. So the, the smallest one, he's a little bit bigger than that now. But um, first we have our five-year-old, Brooke, um, who is uh, significantly smarter than I think she should be at that age. And if you're a parent, you know that's a good or a bad thing. That can be both. Um, but uh, uh, no, I love her to death. She's awesome. Um, up next is the two-year-old, the little one in the middle there. Her name's Blake. Um, she is just such a, a, a gentle, loving soul. She has so much uh, sensitivity and feelings. She just she's such an she has such an amazing heart. Um, and last but not least, again, that's that's Barrett. He's a little bit bigger than that now, but he's coming up on five months old. Um, you know, I don't have a lot to say about him. He eats, sleeps, and fills his diaper. There's not a whole lot to, no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, he's, he's incredible. He's uh, d developed a reputation for his uh, Mohawk-style haircut, which um, was his doing, not mine. Um, but uh, he's, he's a smiler whenever he makes eye contact with people. He's learning to laugh. Um, and he's, he's also learning that his sisters would literally smother him with affection if we would let them. That's, they love him that much that they would, they would suffocate him with it. But, uh, so that's my family. Uh, but let me give you a quick rundown of my own history. So I grew up in a very loving, very uh, God-fearing home. Uh, my gra parents, grandparents, all uh, very devout church attendees of the Baptist church. Uh, my great-grandfather was actually a, uh, a Baptist minister for a very long time. Looking back on his life, he is uh, probably one of the single greatest role models that, I, that God has given me. And if I live my life to be half the man of God that he was, then I would absolutely consider it an honor that God allowed me to emulate such an incredible man after God's own heart. And so I came to know the Lord at the ripe old age of seven and was actually baptized by my great-grandfather, who was 80 years my senior. Um, I attended church regularly all my life, didn't have any like major hiccups in my, my church-going attendance or anything like that, but 
I didn't really start to own my own faith until around the time, uh, or at least shortly after, I met Hannah. Again, I, I point to her as uh, the spiritual guide that came into my life at the right time. She pulled me out of the, the spiraling life that I was starting to live, and I owe so much of the man that I am today to her patience and her uh, unconditionally loving God and through that loving me, because there were a lot of times where I didn't deserve that love. But, um, but no when I say that, when I say that Hannah and I, we have a great relationship, we, we love each other very much, we're doing very well as a couple, it wasn't always that way. We didn't always have that. I, I will be the first one to tell you that the first two years of our marriage were incredibly difficult. We had a really hard time. We're both pretty stubborn, so we tended to butt heads a lot. Um, we did a lot of fighting, and we, we honestly, we didn't understand each other. And a big part of that, though, I think, is we didn't care to understand each other, at least not until we looked past our own self-interests. And so as we dive into this morning's message, as we get started this morning, I'd like to pose a question for you. Have you ever found yourself in the awkward position of trying to forgive someone who wasn't sorry for what they'd done to you? Well, for me... That answer is easy. Yes, of course. Of course I felt that way. The, the first couple years of our marriage, I felt that a lot. And I'll bet she felt it even more than I did. Sometimes people just don't care to see the weight and the implications of the wrong that they've done to you. And do you know what the most difficult part of all that is? You know what the most difficult part of that process is? It's that when you finally come to, the, to that place, when you finally come to that place of truly forgiving someone, when you, you finally reach that point that the Holy Spirit has led you to forgive that person, the relationship is still broken, isn't it? You see, we can forgive, we can forgive other people, but forgiveness, but, excuse me, but relationship, it cannot be restored without repentance, and so as I've been praying over this message um, and kind of seeking the Lord with how I, I want to address you all, the church body, I want you to know that this message is coming from a place of love. Just as Jesus loves each and every one of you, so do I. And I hope you understand that. There are probably, there's probably some of you in here who, who maybe you've, if you're in this room or you're watching at home, Facebook, we love you all. We're, we're hoping you can make it back at some point. But if there, there's some of you who are tuning in right now who maybe you've never experienced that all-consuming love that the Lord offers. Maybe there's some of you here in this room who, who have known that closeness to God, but now it kind of feels like a distant memory. It's been a while. Or maybe there's probably some of you here or again on, on Facebook or downstairs if we have anyone down there. There's probably some of you here who are constantly wondering, how is it even possible? How could I possibly ever feel that closeness? How could I feel that relationship with God given what I've seen or done or said? But church, I also want you to know that if you really want to be applying this text, to be applying this holy, this holy scripture into your life this morning, then this should probably be a pretty jagged pill to swallow for you. So in everything I say to you, I promise you I'll give you the truth. And even if that truth is difficult, church, I promise the pain of this truth will lead to hope if you're willing to accept it. So here's the truth. Here's the truth. If you feel the displeasure of God, it's not his fault. If you feel separated from God, if you feel that separation from God in your relationship, it's because of your sin. 
And we will never be able to restore that relationship with God if we continue to minimize that sin. But church, in that truth, in that truth, there there is profound hope. You see, when we stop minimizing that sin, when we stop pushing that sin down and not addressing it, there's hope for reconciliation in our relationship with God, just as there's hope for reconciliation in our human relationships, just as Hannah and I have always had that hope for reconciliation that never went away. And the same is true for God. So we're continuing on in our series called Assembly Required, where we're exploring a number of the Psalms. And the heart of this series is to help us reinforce our conviction as God's people to come together, to assemble each week in worship. And one important practice of worship is our confession of sin. So if our sin earns us God's displeasure, if our sin separates us from God and from his joy, then how is it possible to be restored to joy And to be restored in our relationship with God. How is it possible to be restored to a joyful relationship? Well, on that question, I'll have you open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is where we will be studying this morning. And you'll notice once you reach Psalm 51, you'll notice that when the the Bible was translated and it was put into English, they added a quick little uh, note at the top of Psalm 51 before the actual psalm even begins. They call that a superscription. And the superscription reads... A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you know the story, you know what that that note means, you understand why it's important and why it was placed there before Psalm 51 begins. If you don't know the story, let me me loop you in on the secret real quick. So, So David was a king, perhaps the greatest king of Israel. He was chosen by God. He was anointed. He was a king after God's own heart. He was a warrior, a poet. He was a shepherd. However, one spring, a time when kings would typically go off to war if war was being waged, one spring David decided to stay home. And during that time as he was staying home, he stepped out one evening on his palace rooftop and he looked down over the city. And he saw a woman named Bathsheba. She was the wife of one of his most faithful soldiers. And he lusted after her. He called her to his palace, he slept with her, and she became pregnant. And to cover this unthinkable sin, David thought of something even worse. He arranged for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed in battle. And after she mourned for him, David took Bathsheba to be his wife. Now the story seemingly ends at the end of 2 Samuel 11, where it says, And when the morning was over, when Bathsheba's mourning period was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, church, before his nation, David had gotten away with adultery and murder. But it's that last line right there at the end of 2 Samuel 11. It's that last sentence. I'll read it again. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now that's ominous and terrifying is what that is. You see, David had deceived a nation, but he had not deceived God. God sent a prophet, Nathan, to confront David. The prophet laid out David's sin before the king and before the king's court, and David was cut to the heart. David confessed, and God promised him both consequences and forgiveness following that confession. 
And after that confrontation, that's when David penned the psalm we're reading today. He was already forgiven. But Psalm 51 shows us that he was still dealing with the brokenness his sin had created, particularly the brokenness between he and God. So it shouldn't surprise us that David struggled to believe in this forgiveness. He struggled to accept it. He struggled to live in it when he was still feeling the consequences of his sin. Psalm 51 is David's journey back to God, back to the presence of God. And here, this is the beautiful hope that we find in this passage, the beautiful hope of knowing our own brokenness. You see, if there was a way for David to come back into the presence of God, then church, there's a way for us as well. We have that opportunity as well. We learn through Psalm 51 that cleansing and joy come through confession. Cleansing and joy come through confession. Read with me Psalm chapter 51. Starting in verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the sacred heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As we've been learning throughout the series, the Psalms are poems. As that video had said, the, the Psalms are poems. And when we seek to understand poems, what we need to do is we need to read more than just the words they're saying. You see, there's, there's meaning in the structure of each Psalm. So for Psalm 51 particularly, the first two and the last two verses, they stand out separately from the rest. And the transition in tone between the beginning and the end, church, it's monumental. The Psalm moves from a desperate plea for mercy a desperate plea for mercy that's founded not in the merits of the author, founded not in the merits of David, but rather in the character of God. And at the end, it moves to a festal celebration in Jerusalem of right sacrifices that are offered to the joy of God. Psalm 51 is a movement from depression and filthiness to cleansing and joy. And we see this as we look at the three stanzas that connect the opening and closing of the psalm. Each of these three stanzas takes us in a step along that journey. And the first step we see begins in verse 3, which is to know and own your sin. Know and own your sin. Verse 3 begins saying, For I know my transgressions. 
The reason the psalmist has begun with a plea for mercy is that he already knows his sin. He knows it. One theologian had this to say, we will never seriously apply to God for pardon until we have obtained such a view of our sins as inspires us with fear. See, David is painfully aware of his sin. He says it is ever before him. We understand his grief is deep. And many of us, we can identify with deep grief. We know what that feels like. But then he says something that we might struggle to identify with. Speaking to God, he says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, of course, David had sinned against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against their child, his army, and his nation. And this statement, it's not meant to minimize that sin. No, this statement is meant to show how truly deep his sin and all sin cuts. It highlights the essential nature of sin as something that is first and foremost against God. You see, David has understood that every relation in which man stands to his fellow men and to created things in general is but the manifest form of his fundamental relationship to God. John Peroni, a 19th century English bishop, had this to say. He said, all wrong done to our neighbor is wrong done to one created in the image of God. All tempting of our neighbor to evil is taking the part of Satan against God. And so far as in us lies, defeating God's good purpose of grace towards him. All wounding of another, whether in body or soul, is a sin against the goodness of God. So if David's sin is first against God, then it is first before God that he must be forgiven. Because if he's not forgiven by God, then his sin is not truly forgiven. So David throws himself before God, before God's mercy, refusing to justify himself, but rather owning a sinfulness that runs so deep in him that he was born in it. David owns his brokenness because God has shined a light on it through the words of the prophet, teaching truth and wisdom to David's inward being and secret heart. Now the word we translate as secret heart refers to a deep, hidden place in our soul. There are deep recesses of our soul that we cannot search out. They are, they're places that we have welcomed darkness and we have shrouded from outside eyes. We've spent so much time hiding them that we've forgotten what they look like in the light. I think about it this way. You know how when the, whenever the lights go completely out in a room, whether it's you, you lose power in your home at night or you enter a room with no windows and you don't know where the light switch is, we all get that that, that tenseness, right? Like there's, there's a, a, a feeling that none of us like. We all kind of freak out a little. We have that, that tenseness because uh, in the dark, we're worried about tripping over something or, or breaking something or even hurting ourselves. And so we try to avoid that scenario as much as possible. We have a fear of, these, of that sense of unknown that darkness brings. And so this is what, da this is what had happened to David in his sin. He was so caught up in minimizing and avoiding the consequences that darkness had descended upon the inner places of his soul and he could no longer find the truth about what resided there. It's not until we acknowledge our, and own our spiritual darkness that we can ask God to shine his light upon it and find truth and wisdom. Because the path back to joy in God requires us to know and own our sin, 
We should pray for God to convict us of hidden sin. You see, conviction is something that we all dread, so we don't often pray for it. When's the last time you heard someone say, pray, I pray that you would convict me? But think about it through David's perspective for just a moment. You see, he had committed a great sin, and God was, quote, displeased. We read in 2 Samuel 12. Now, God could have done a number of things with that displeasure. He could have uh, poured out his wrath on David, exchanging his life for Uriah's. God could have removed his blessing from David, just as he had removed his blessing from David's predecessor, Saul, and just let the kingdom slowly slip through David's fingers. You see, when we consider the alternatives, when we consider what God could have done, we realize that conviction is grace because it's the first step toward turning back to God. You see, Nathan was God's grace to David. So why don't we pray for God's spirit to show us similar grace? Let's pray for brothers and sisters like Nathan who will love us well enough to tell us when we're wrong. But I'll warn you, I'll warn you, church, praying a prayer like that, it's going to ruffle some feathers in your life. If you start praying prayers like that, it can be dangerous to your comfortable life. So understand what you're getting into. You may not have even noticed what sins have worked their way into your daily routine because it's just natural at this point. So do you see? Do you know your sin? Have you owned your sin? Do you have people in your life who will press in on your sin? Do you have your own Nathan who will speak truth even if it hurts? Having been taught the truth of his brokenness by God, it caused David to plead for inner transformation. This begging for inner transformation is the fruit of confession that comes from conviction. We see in this third stanza of Psalm 51 what confession looks like. Confession is the renouncing of wickedness and embracing of righteousness that is mediated by God when the repentant convict surrenders to him. The stanza begins in verse 7. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, hyssop is an image that doesn't translate directly into our culture, but it had important sacramental meaning to the ancient Jews. Hyssop served a ceremonial role in applying sacrifices to cover God's people. It was traditionally used by priests, but here the use of hyssop is different. Because David understands the depths of his sin, he understands that he can only be saved by God mediating a sacrifice. He may not have yet fully understood how God would do that through Jesus on the cross, but hoping in God's grace, he begged that God would wash him clean. You see, church, God was David's only hope. And the hope of God's salvation for David would be as hearing joy and gladness from a distance. Even before the forgiveness and transformation had taken root in David's heart, he hears the celebration of restoration as if hearing a grand festival at a great distance. And in response to this glimmer of hope, David pleads again for God to show him mercy. Any transformation in David's inward being must begin with God hiding his face from David's sin and blotting out David's iniquities. 
And then from mercy springs grace in verse 10. David requests a clean heart, a right spirit, and the enduring presence of God, all leading to the joy of salvation that upholds David with a willing spirit. Through David's prayer of confession, he walks us through the life of repentance that's mediated by God. It begins where God cleanses David by sacrifice. Then God promises the fruit of joy at cleansing. God expresses mercy by overlooking David's sin. God expresses grace by creating in David a clean heart. God upholds David in the power of his spirit. God restores David to joy because of his salvation. And finally, David joyfully follows God because of the willing spirit God has given him through his salvation. You see, oftentimes we think of confession, when we think of confession and repentance, we think of removing sin from our lives. While the removal is, of sin is part of confession and repentance, church, it falls far short of the picture that's painted here in Psalm 51. My wife is a big fan of the, the HGTV show Fixer Upper. Um, the one with, uh, you know the one, with the adorable Christian couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines? Yeah, they're, they're cute. Um, that, I, that's like the Chick-fil-A of home renovation shows. It's blessed by God. Yeah, yeah. God loves that show. <laughs> anyway, so Hannah loves watching uh, an, an old, broken-down home get turned into a modern-day masterpiece. In fact, she's loved that show so much that she convinced me two and a half years ago that we should buy a fixer-upper for ourselves with no experience in flipping homes and hiring almost no contractors. I, I think you see where this is going. Thank the Lord for friends in the trades. That's all I'm saying. So if you've seen this show or you've seen any other show similar to it, and HGTV has a thousand of them by this point, so pick your favorite, um, but there's a common highlight to each episode of these shows, and they call that Demolition Day, or Demo Day for short. And the reason for Demo Day, I see we got some fans, the reason for Demo Day is, be, is uh, they, they get a bunch of people to come in and just rip the place to shreds. They, they beat down walls, they rip out some nasty floors and cabinets and, and everything else, some old, old sinks, you name it. It's fun to watch. It's a lot of fun to watch. I can attest, it's even more fun to do. It's a good stress relief if you need that in your life. So for most of us, though, Demolition Day is our idea of confession and repentance. We think we need to go through our own lives with sawzalls and jackhammers and sledgehammers, destroying everything that we find. And it can be exciting on the front end. It can be very exciting because we see parts of our lives that we don't like. But then we get through a season of self-destruction. We make it to the end and we find ourselves in a barren house, ripped down to the studs and equally unlivable. See, confession and repentance aren't about us ripping out the sinful parts of our lives. It's more about us being like a homeowner on Fixer Upper who has heard of how beautiful their house can become, and so they seek out and hire a master designer like Joanna and a master contractor like Chip to make it happen. True confession and repentance come when we know and own our need for transformation so deeply, so deeply that we give up trying to do it ourselves and we plead for God to transform us. We plead for transformation when we realize our sin goes deeper than our habits. And our lives need to be ripped down to the studs, redesigned and rebuilt to the glory of God. This is why the only reasonable conclusion to the shining of God's truth in our inward being is that we would appeal to the cleansing power of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus. 
This is what David did, though he didn't fully understand it. He asked God to serve as a mediator and sacrifice giver on his behalf. He hoped that God would answer, and God did answer that prayer a few centuries later in the person of Jesus. You see, he came as a sacrificial blood to be sprinkled over our lives. Only God could cover our sin. He taught us the ways of wisdom, and then he sent his spirit to his disciples to convict us of our sin and guide us back into righteousness. Jesus, the humble carpenter from Nazareth, is in the business of remodeling souls. He died to destroy our sin so that God could turn his face from it. And then he rose again on Easter morning to create a new life for us. And church, our role, our role is to respond. So respond today as God convicts you. Respond with confession. Respond by pleading for inner transformation. And church, never stop responding. Respond to your cleansing with joy and with a willing spirit, following Jesus wherever he leads. Salvation leads us to the joy of confession because when God transforms our inner being, it leads from despair to joy that we celebrate and proclaim. The fourth stanza of our psalm breaks out in a life of celebration. Publicly praising God and teaching others about him was, the part of a, was part of the response of God's deliverance in a person's life. And this proclamation of personal salvation, it produces emphatic fruit that turns sinners like us to God. Church, if we aren't seeing fruit in our own witness, if we aren't seeing fruit of the, the witness that we have for Christ, maybe it's because we're only relating facts about God. And we've stopped teaching transgressors, as David puts it, from our, from our own experience of salvation. We see the willing spirit God has created in David in his de desire to please God in this stanza. He teaches of God's glory to his own shame, singing aloud of God's righteousness in passing over his own blood guiltiness. He prays for God to open his lips to proclaim praise and then, and then, he turns to the issue of making a proper sacrifice to God. We learn here in this verse, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Church, over the years, this verse has been misunderstood to mean that sacrifices aren't necessary to cover sin. But rather, we, we, all we need to do is simply be sorry, and God will forgive us. But an interpretation like that, to say that that is true, would completely defy logic. Because David has already appealed to God through the sacrificial system. We saw that in verse 7. And then he concludes the psalm. He finishes the psalm in a celebration of right sacrifices to God. Verses 18 and 19. No, what he's saying what David is saying is that no action of devotion can make us clean. There's a quote by John Calvin that I love. He says, The man of broken spirit is one who has emptied himself of all vainglorious confidence and brought to acknowledge that he is nothing. The contrite heart rejects the idea of earning God's favor and has no dealings with God upon the principle of exchange. And this is why we celebrate 
This is exactly why we celebrate. It's not that we've overcome our sin, but rather it's that God has overcome our sin for us. That was the point of Israel's sacrificial system, was to point to the ultimate sacrifice for sin in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Church, the sacrifices were not a means of salvation, but they were rather a celebration of salvation, a reminder of mercy, and a training of the heart to look to God to save. And today, this is the power of corporate worship. It's the power of prayer, of corporate confession, of Christian community. Church, if you came here today, if you showed up this morning thinking that you would somehow be forgiven of your sin by your devotion, I have bad and good news for you. By showing up today, church, you have received zero forgiveness. Did you really think that an hour out of your week would make up for a lifetime of sin against God? It didn't. That's the bad news. The good news is that while your sacrifice has meant nothing, Jesus has already died in your place. He's already covered your sin. He's calling your heart to repentance first, and then he will take care of the rest. Because relationship is restored through confession. And because relationship is restored through confession, church, we can say that cleansing and joy come through confession. It's only by the power of God that we can be cleansed from our sins. And it's only in right relationship with God that we can live a life of unfading joy. Our church assembly, this church assembly, is for those with broken spirits. But, we, but it's in a place like this that we celebrate the work that God has done through his son Jesus to restore that spirit to become whole again. God draws us together. God assembles us together in corporate worship so that we can celebrate, so that we can experience the personal salvation. We already know the personal salvation that God has brought us and we come here to experience it together. So let's close today, church. Let's close today praising God like we have never praised God before because we know the beauty of that personal salvation. Would you pray with me? Oh God, you are good. Oh God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy because God, it is undeserving. God, we thank you for your willingness to convict we thank you that you have put it that you put it on our hearts that we we should come to you that we need to be the ones who come in repentance to you so that we might find a right relationship with you and find joy in you that is unfading. God allow us to set aside our pride to set aside our willingness to just push our sin down to avoid consequences allow us to come and plead for your mercy to confess our sin to own our sin and allow that confession to push forward and bear fruit and bear fruit that others would see and come to find that same unfading joy. 
God, as we close today, I pray that you would just be with every single individual in this room, every single individual on Facebook and downstairs, wherever they may be, that you would just continue to convict them by showing them your grace and your mercy and allow them to experience that all-consuming love that you offer. I pray these things in your name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.